This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The federal budget will be dropping, I'm sorry, today at 4.30 and has been predicted that, uh, uh, I guess, the money was spent last time. So uh, obviously uh, not a lot left in the drawer for uh, this budget. What does it or what will it entail? And what are the predictions? Let's bring in Christo Alvarez, Queen's University labor and political history professor who uh, was on the convention floor and with us now. Hello, Christo. How are you today? Good, good. So are we expecting too much today, or is it just uh, political hacks and that are listening and, and wondering what's really going to come down? Is Joe Public listening to this? I mean, it, it, you know, budgets are always important. You know, there's always the pomp and circumstance of, you know, the, the finance minister with his new pair of shoes and all of that. So it is one of the more, you know, more major political events you see outside of elections, of course. So there's certainly that. But, you know, considering it's not the first you know, Justin Trudeau liberal government budget, it really is probably less likely that it's going to get the same amount of attention. Uh, will people still be talking about the honeymoon after this budget? Or is that, pretty, is that pretty much gone and over with? You know, it's going to depend. There's a lot of forces pulling Trudeau here. There are some indications that they could, you know, reach out to that, you know, broad, you know, center-left base that, that, that put him in power in 2015, there's, you know, talks about perhaps putting in, you know, a, a, an adjustment to how capital gains taxes are covered on certain stock uh, bonuses, which would, you know, reach out to the kind of, you know, left who feels that, you know, the tax code favors the wealthy. But, you know, on the other hand, you might see, you could also see that with, you know, changes to how unemployment insurance is, is handed out. But you could also see, you know, maybe a return to some form of austerity. You could see, a, a scaling back of some of those plans, and that could, you know, you know, anger some of the people who supported the government. You know, you also see this general talk about, you know, a gender, a gender lens on the budget, and you know that could win a lot of support from 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 women and from and from, you know, uh, people who identify as feminists. But if it's felt that that's kind of cynical, then that could cause a backlash too. Do they have much wiggle room here? Is there much they can offer in the way of uh, new means? It's going to be hard. I mean, the, the, the problem is, that, you know, the deficit is, has grown since the election. The economy has not really rebounded. The price of oil is still low. And there are concerns, I think, still with, you know, the volatility down south. And what some people have suggested, I think the Globe and Mail, for instance, has said, well, you know, if Trump is all of a sudden going to slash American taxes, be it on corporations or individuals, that could create difficulties for this government because there might be a fear that maybe Canada can't cut, you know, taxes, doesn't have to cut taxes on the wealthy, but they might be, you know, seen as unwise to raise them, you know, considering that the, the, the tax dodge advantage from moving from Canada to the U.S. could grow if the, if the Republicans, you know, enacted a more conservative proposal. Uh, would this mean that perhaps in regard to the budget that uh, Canadians or certainly the government will take a wait-and-see approach to see how this does all pan out with Trump down south? I mean, to a certain degree, but I mean, you can only do so much, right? I mean, the budget is going to be announced and the budget has to plan with these things in regard. I mean, I don't think you'll see anything truly revolutionary in the budget. And I think that's also because, you know, the Liberals, you know, uh, didn't really promise too much revolutionary, and for some of the revolutionary promises, like electoral reform, they, they didn't keep them. Um, so I don't think you'll see a lot of major changes in that sense. But but if you were going to see some major changes, they might have been approached more cautiously, again, given, given the global economy 
and then given also the context in uh, the United States. If there were really any bonbons in this budget, wouldn't they have been leaked by now or lobbed out in some way? You know, it could be. I mean, it depends on the strategy. Uh, you know, something governments have done before, and the Conservatives had done this federally, and the Liberals before them was, you know, sort of underestimate the good things in the budget. Uh, you know, lower expectations, and then maybe offer something that's not fantastic, but can serve, you know, a, a, good, a good political note. That's something that you can give your cabinet ministers and your backbenchers to go back to, you know, go back to the local riding and talk about this new program. So that could be a strategy. But you're right, there could have been the case that, you know, if there's not a whole lot here, you know, then, then managing expectations, keeping the profile low might be the strategy. I'm not sure, you know, exactly what the approach is. Again, like, there were some things that they could do. Again, if, if their goal was to, to, you know, move leftward, they could talk about, you know, again, raising uh, capital gains um, uh, provisions within certain stock bonuses, or they could talk about their improvements to EI. But, you know, conversely, if they're trying to emphasize their business connections, they could talk about increased infrastructure. They could talk about, you know, how they've been working with certain tech, tech-based tech industries to, to increase, you know, that kind of investment. So you're right that I'm not exactly sure where they're going with this in that sense. It seemed uh, through the election campaign and such, it was all about middle class, middle class, middle class. It was certainly a key strategic uh, 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 reference point that they would always uh, seem to end up at no matter where they started. It was about helping the middle class. Will we hear a lot of that this budget as well? Almost certainly. And and, uh, regardless of whether it actually helps the middle class or not, and there's been some good analyses about how you know, some of the liberals' programs, for example, their, 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 their middle-class tax cut, which is what it was called, it's primarily helped people, you know, in the top 25% of income filings, which, you know, might include a portion of the upper middle class, but largely helps, you know, well-to-do Canadians, you know. Um, regardless of whether you'll see an actual thing that helps the middle class, I think that will still be their messaging. You know, Trudeau has had a fairly consistent message, and you heard him in the speeches where he speaks of, the middle class and the people working hard to join the middle class. And right. I think that's been a successful messaging for him, and I don't see that stopping at this stage. So again, uh, you know, reality aside, the politics of the middle class are going to continue to be key to this government. Uh, so at the end of the day, for the average Canadian, what will this mean? Will we see tax increases of some sort? I mean, if you do see tax increases, it'll probably be in a fairly arcane sense. I mean, again, one of the things you're looking at is and it'll affect such a small portion of Canadians, but I think it was the the, the look at potentially how you know how you calculate uh, your stock stock trades and whether it's deferred income or whether it's capital gains and this whole debate because capital gains are taxed it differently. I don't think you'll see that. I don't think you'll see a whole lot in that sense. I don't think you'll see a whole lot of cuts either. I think this is going to be a mostly status quo budget. You know, the Liberals are going to keep their, their, their focus kind of on deficit spending. They're going to, I, I assume, you know, hope the economy turns around, um, you know, with, with, you know, whether it's on commodity prices or what have you, or if the American economy starts growing, that will reap some benefit of that. But I don't see any kind of shocking changes coming down the pipe. What is the government's biggest challenge moving forward from this point on, as opposed to, of course, the rosy start that they had? What's, what's their biggest challenge moving forward? I think it's going to be keeping that coalition that they that they built, if only briefly. You know, that coalition might, you know, that coalition of 
of people who would vote liberal, vote green, or vote NDP, um, and, and keeping those people happy. Uh, and depending on the next person who leads the Conservative Party, that could be easy or it could be quite difficult. And, you know, that's something they're going to have to look at. I mean, I think on the one hand, you know, they're going to have to at least keep the rhetoric up of, of the middle class, of this gen- the first gender-lensed budget and all of this. And if they can do that, they can be quite effective. But if the austerity or if, you know, the economy keeps, you know, being, you know, sluggish, then they're going to have to make choices. And again, the history has always shown that the Liberal Party, when push comes to shove, you know, when budget realities either force them to, to, to take on the right or take on the left, they always, you know, move in the direction of the right. And I think that's something that, you know, some Trudeau voters might be disappointed by if the situation continues. This budget might be more of a status quo, but maybe that's something more for next year. Uh, obviously promised electoral reform and backed out of that. Ab- Aboriginal uh, issues, some say maybe he's not giving the attention to that that he should. Obviously environmentalists with Im- improving uh, pipelines and such. Uh, is that is that him moving closer to the centre, do you think? Well, I think he was already kind of at the centre. I think from my frame of reference, Trudeau is probably moving to the right. Yeah, um, He was already kind of at the centre. But I would say that... But yeah, in that in that sense, yeah, I think there is the reality that Canadians want the things that the NDP traditionally propose, and the Liberals understand that. But the Liberals and their donors and the people who work the Liberal Party tend to not want to do those things. So the traditional model is promise those things and then and then give them only in a partial sense, or then not give them. And I know that sounds kind of glib, but it's. It's largely the truth. The Liberals do, in a sense, campaign from the centre-left and govern from the centre-right. And I think that's, you know, something we're going to see from Trudeau. And again, if the budgetary realities emphasize that, Trudeau won't, for instance, be raising taxes on upper-middle-class Canadians. He'll be more likely to, you know, to cut social spending. So you made reference to the sluggish economy, uh, which obviously has taken a lot longer than anyone ever anticipated to, to I guess, uh, turn around or even get back to where it was, which some are questioning whether that will happen in the near future. Uh, are these things that a prime minister can change, or is that a world issue and you're just kind of, of, along, you're, you're just kind of along for the ride? You know, largely, like, largely it is global things. I mean, even the president of the United States, a much more powerful person, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the size of that economy or the, the chairman of the Communist Party in China, you know, these people control much larger economies, yet still are at the whim of, of global economic forces. I think it's, it's largely about, you know, putting policies in place that can, you know, you capture opportunities. So, for instance, you know, and, and you, you would look at the price of oil being low right now, but if the price of oil was high, you know, would we have policies to capture that wealth? That could be one thing that could make a difference. You know, you could look at the fact that a government, maybe not in the short term, and this is always why it's hard for politicians, but a government making investment decisions, say investing in the new technology, might, you know, produce wealth for Canadians by that decision 10, 15, 20 years later, but, you know, it might not have direct immediate impacts. Infrastructure spending you know, depending on the kind of infrastructure spending can cause short to medium-term growth because, you know, you're employing people, your companies are making metal and, and, and whatnot, and I think in that sense you can. But in the broadest sense, something like oil prices, which is a big part of the Canadian economy and a huge part of certain regions of the country, that we don't really have control over. 
Incentive programs that he has put in place, are they working or too early to tell? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, think it is, I think it is too early to tell. You know, and it, you know, it could even, it's, sometimes it, with, with incentive programs and with stimulus, it's like, is the, if, if the economy is still sluggish, is it the case that the program didn't work or is it the case that the program has actually made the you know, sluggish period less sluggish? It, mm-hmm. It's always hard to tell. These are extremely complex matters that, you know, people who, who study them for a living, you know, economists and what have you, can't always have very clear answers on. I would say that, you know, in a sense, his, his stimulus package has probably, you know, helped certain regions. But there's going to also be a psychological effect. And I think for a while, Canadians in the short to medium term supported his vision. You know, he got a majority government based on the idea that we're going to go into debt now to grow the economy and then pay off that debt through increased tax revenue. You know, if the economy continues to be sluggish, there could be people who get deficit panic. And if people have deficit panic, that could cause issues for him politically and maybe for the economy more generally. Christo Abelese has been with us, Queen's University labor and political history professor, uh, and, of course, talking about the budget coming up later on today, this afternoon. And, of course, uh, as it is unveiled, we will bring it to you. Christo, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Of course, we're following the ongoing story of uh, a shooting at the UK Parliament. Uh, Here is a clip from the BBC and what they had to say. Suddenly there was a a flurry of activity up near the the glass doors, the entrance to the uh, main street area. And it looked like maybe there was a protest or some demonstrations. Then we saw people running outside the building, running away from the Westminster Bridge area, and uh, we were told to step back from the glass doors. All right, uh, here is a comment from the former Polish minister. I saw someone down, uh, uh, obviously in great distress, and then I saw a second person down, uh, and I started filming, and then I saw three more people down, uh, one of them bleeding uh, profusely. And here's a comment regarding the lockdown from the House leader. At the moment, the very clear advice from the police and the director of security in the House is that we should remain under suspension and that the chamber should remain in lockdown. So there you have it, uh, British government on lockdown after several people injured in an incident on the Westminster Bridge and in front of the UK Parliament building. Police are treating this incident as a terrorist attack. To talk more about all of this, John Thompson is with us, security consultant, strategic intelligence group, and is on the line with us now. Hello, John. How are you today? Uh, Touch of the flu, otherwise fine. Uh, your thoughts on what you have seen progress so far and any updates you can give us on how this is progressing? It uh, seems to be uh, sort of another classic attack out of the uh, the Al-Qaeda and ISIS playbook. Um, you know, they may have recruited some uh, local people to deliver the attack. It looks like there may have been uh, two of them, although that's not confirmed yet. Uh, but using the, the vehicle as a distraction and of course as we saw in nice last year uh using the vehicle to cause casualties by running people over and while that's going on someone else um 
going up to a police officer at Westminster and uh, trying to uh, assault him with a knife so he could get uh, the police officer's gun. And again, we saw that last weekend in uh, uh, Orly Airport in Paris, where a jihadist tried to use a knife to uh, get a gun from a soldier. So is the lockdown still in effect at this time? It'll be gradually easing, but it, it's sort of the first reaction is, you know, the police have to, uh, one, uh, immediately uh, make sure that no more violence is occurring, uh, two, um, treat the casualties, but three, make sure there's nobody else wandering around ready to launch a secondary attack or that they haven't locked up uh, another assailant with the people they're trying to protect. So they've got to screen everybody and search everything. Uh, is there any reason to believe this incident is over or there may be another stage at this time? It uh, it looks like it's over. Um, the, the ability of the, the jihad movement to recruit a lot of people is, is often limited, even in England uh, and in parts of Western Europe. It also suggests that, uh, uh, unlike in, in Paris and Brussels, they've had a hard time getting a hold of firearms and explosives. Uh, that it's hard to acquire them without tipping off the authorities. So they launched this attack uh, with improvised low-tech weapons, you know, an SUV and a knife. Uh, That was my next comment. Uh, Obviously, this is a very primitive type attack. What can we what can we take away from this? Well, this is the sort of attack that uh, uh, the police were on the alert. They'd been issuing a number of reports sort of saying that, you know, if you know something, say something, because There was chatter going on. Um, There was somebody talking to uh, uh, websites that are monitored in the Middle East, Um, but they didn't know who or what. Uh, And we use the term lone wolves sometimes to describe attacks like this, although we we really shouldn't. Uh, But people uh, with this sort of level of improvisation are almost impossible to stop. You know, how, how do you what do you take away SUVs from everybody? We take away knives. How is that even possible? Yeah. Uh, do you think there was any trigger for this particular attack? Um, whether it has to do with restricting uh, people traveling from certain areas, or do you think this was just something that was planned? And and uh, once, of course, uh, that plan complete, uh, the, it was put in motion. Well, it, it was the anniversary of the the Brussels attack last year. Yeah. Does is that uh, significant here? Do you think? It might be. Uh, it remains to be seen what to the, the terrorists were communicating with uh, uh, to anyone in ISIS or Al-Qaeda, whoever's behind this. Um, the other point, of course, is that ISIS is being ground down right now uh, quite severely, and this is often the case, you know, that they will they will lash out to show that they're still powerful, that they still have their, their credibility, and they're still to be feared. So uh, there's spin-off attacks at a time like this for them are especially welcome. Uh, you, you talked about that. Well, let me ask you, what is the health of ISIS? W- where are they now? Well, ISIS, uh, uh, the main difference between ISIS and, and Al-Qaeda, if, if you can use the term, is sort of like 30 years ago, the difference between Marxist-Leninists and Trotskyites. You know, that mm. Al-Qaeda is disciplined, uh, very doctrinaire, and they don't like being embarrassed, so they, they will talk things over before they commit. Where ISIS is sort of, you know, let's go attack something now. You know, get in your face. You know, mm-hmm. don't stop talking. More action type stuff. Uh, the other point, of course, is ISIS. Al Qaeda saying we want to build a caliphate, and ISIS is saying, hey, we built one. You know, and they they did. 
they, they, they built their state in Iraq and Syria, and now that state is falling apart. So ISIS is, is trying to prove that it's still valid, it's still dangerous. Um, as well as shopping for a new place to try and organize their caliphate again. What happens as, as you put, as you put it, uh, it falls apart? Where, where are we in this battle, John? This is something that's scary. Um, ISIS has known that they're they're losing in Iraq and Syria, and they've been farming people back uh, throughout Europe, and uh, it's. The, the hard intelligence is pretty clear that they may have hundreds of their veterans inside Europe. Um, how they can command them and control them, that, that won't be easy. Uh, it's not easy to get a hold of uh, uh, automatic weapons and explosives in Europe, although it is easier to get them there than it is in North America. Uh, they have a lot of potential. The other point is they're fixated on attacking the capital cities of Europe. We've seen them going after Paris. We've seen them going after Brussels. Um, London has been a popular terrorist target for 50 years, so the you know, London police aren't too uh, surprised. They're usually more ready for this than most police forces are. But uh, we also know that ISIS has been snorting uh, about attacking Rome um, and, and some other and Berlin as well. Uh, John, can you hang on for just a second? We're going to bring in uh, Mike Droulet. And uh, Mike, of course, is uh, a global national correspondent and is with us now. We want to get to see the latest we can from uh, Global News. Mike, what can you tell us? Is this lockdown still in effect? From what we gather, the lockdown is still in effect. Uh, the MPs who are stuck in, in uh, the House of Commons are uh, still locked in their, their offices and uh, uh, within Parliament. They are not able to leave as of yet. Um, the, the police are starting to usher them out in groups. Uh, but they are in lockdown until further notice. There's also, interestingly enough, the London Eye, that uh, the large Ferris wheel that uh, takes up much of the skyline, mm-hmm. has been in lockdown for the longest of time. And people are stuck in there uh, because when when there is a, an attack of any sort, sort, they freeze the ride and go into complete lockdown as well. So people wow. are stuck at the top of the London Eye watching all of this unfold, which must be uh, quite the view. Is this event considered over, or are they still worried about second? attacks well it I don't I don't know if uh, they haven't said they're just actually about to do a press conference now about it being uh, about uh, to give an update however you can see from all the video that police are running around without without guns they are taking witness statements they seem to be acting as if it is over um, was this a lone wolf we, we don't know yet it has certainly seems to have some similarities to the Ottawa attack uh, where mm. uh, you know one man attacked and then uh, there was the lockdown of Parliament and because we weren't sure whether or not there was like an, there was another person involved, this seems to be something like that. But again, we're waiting for the press conference for more details. Has anyone claimed responsibility? Not as of yet, uh, but we can. We do know. I mean, there are some some interesting sort of parallels here. Um, obviously, the Ottawa attack is one, but this is the one year anniversary, if you recall, of the attack in Brussels on the airport, where mm-hmm. three bombs were set off and uh, 32 people were killed, uh, more than 300 were injured. So, was there is there any correlation to that? Uh, again, uh, they're going to be going through all of the uh, the CCTV cameras in London because it's it's the most uh, covered city in the world surveilled city in the world in that respect, and and they're going to be trying to figure out where this guy came from and and how this all unfolded. How concerned are people in the UK at just the whole primitive nature of this attack? 
Well, I mean, just think about where it happened. This happened in the uh, shadow of Big Ben yeah. on uh, Westminster Bridge in, uh, in the Palace of Westminster. These are some of the most... Uh, visited spots in all of London, if not the UK. Uh, there were thousands of people in the area, tourists and, and residents of London likewise. Uh, and, and so it's, it strikes at the heart of London. If, you're gonna, if you were going to hit anywhere in England to really hit the people of England, this is where you go. So moving forward, uh, what is the state there now? H- how, do they, how do they continue on with their day? Is the city still in, in lockdown in that center area around? Well, the city does appear to be still in lockdown. Some of, the, some of the MPs are starting to tweet that they want to see Parliament resume today. Mm. They're saying we, we should not allow this to dictate how we act, and uh, we, want, we, need it to, uh, we need Parliament to resume. The thing is, we don't know how many people are hurt as of yet. We're still looking at the simple details. We know that there's at least one dead, and, and based on the pictures and the videos that we're seeing, there could be more. Um, they're fairly horrific, some of the visuals that we're seeing coming out of uh, London today. So a uh, press conference coming up very shortly, and obviously after that you guys will know more. When is that scheduled for? It's uh, going on as we speak. We're just about to hear, it, hear something from them. I-, I will let you go then. Mike Drulé has been with us, Global National. We will watch tonight to uh, find out more. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, let's, uh, let's go back to uh, John Thompson. Uh, John, h- how symbolic is it that where this attack occurred, even, if, even though it was quite primitive? Well, it's it's sort of a, a twofer. You're accomplishing two goals with one attack, because this is an area that's both the seat of the British government um, and, of course, representative of so much of British history, but also it's a tourist area. So you're you're attacking British uh, Britain economically by uh, going after tourists, and of course the attack is also an attack on the British government, but. Uh, let's face it. I mean, the British before this had to. Uh, they we, they had jihad launch attacks in England before, particularly the seven seven attacks the, and the attempted uh, attacks on the subway two weeks later, and the, the attempted firebombing of a nightclub in in London, uh, and so on and so on. Before that, there was the IRA, mm. who uh, actually uh, assassinated a British hero. Uh, in Westminster, uh, when they had a car bomb for Harry uh, Neve in, uh, yeah. in 1980, so the, the London police, you know, they're just using a, a playbook they've had for a long time that works for them, and it's it's a good playbook. And most people in England, they they don't panic easy, uh, and they also know enough that the, the, the terrorists would like to panic them, hmm. so they make a point about being calm. What do you think about the idea of Parliament resuming today? Well, good idea. Yeah. And again, it's a way of sticking a middle finger up to the attackers. Uh, you talked earlier of, of how what's happening and, and the loss of their state and, and how ISIS is slowly starting to break up. You're talking about veterans moving, ISIS vets moving their way into Europe. Should we be concerned of a large-scale attack that all happens and coordinated at once, or do you think it will continue to be primitive? thing one-offs like we're seeing now both yeah the the, the the simple one-offs are easy to do and almost impossible to stop the big spectacular attacks i mean they dearly love to pull off an attack like the one in mumbai uh, back in 2008 mm-hmm. or take over something like the westgate mall in nairobi they, they dearly love to do an attack like that or repeat what happened in paris 
But those attacks are difficult to achieve, especially the, the planning, coordination, and the logistics, if the authorities are watching for it. Hmm. You know, let me interrupt you there, John. Let me interrupt you there, John, because again, we're we're talking about like like you know, you look at something like nine eleven, and you think, yeah, that's that's a huge plan to orchestrate. But again, when you're talking about things like going into shopping malls or running people over with vehicles, or even bringing in guns or bombs, and and how difficult it is into Europe, I mean, as you said, all it would take is twenty or thirty with vehicles to create chaos. Yeah, well, here's, a, I think, a, a point in, in counterterrorism, and I've, I've done this a few times with several agencies. Um, you you game it. You have sort of the red team, and they said, okay, we're going to attack City X. Uh, how are we going to do it? And you, you put together the, the plan, what you think uh, would cause the maximum amount of damage, the least amount of effort. And it can actually scare you just how easy it may be to, to, to do a lot of damage. Um, one thing they don't do enough of, but what I, I think of as valuable, is what I call the blue team exercise, which is okay. Um, I'm you know, going to launch a terrorist attack in this city. What are all the difficulties I have to achieve to do that? Bearing in mind that there's a certain chance that uh, reconnaissance activities will be picked up, that talking in, in chat rooms with... Uh, uh, an ISIS coordinator overseas may be intercepted. Uh, you might be able to get a, you know, like a case of 20 rifles and ammunition, but again, there's a very good chance you'll get caught. Hmm. And you start working through, say, if, if your chance of doing everything successfully is 80% chance, but you multiply 80 by 80 by 80 by 80, you're starting to look at a very low probability that your attack will be successful. Hmm. Uh, there's been talk recently in the last 24 hours about the U.S. Uh, considering sending troops, um, a thousand troops, into Syria. Where does that go? How does that change that whole paradigm? Well, the, the Syrian civil war is rapidly ending. Um, and that it means in the, the traditional manner of the Middle East that everything's about to change again. Yeah. And that there, there's going to be a new factor to confront and that is basically that Syria is almost a failed state, and the country that's actually holding Syria together right now is Iran, which has invested a lot of resources to back up the Assad government. And Iran, of course, despises the United States. So does this change the discussion? Is it is too little too late? What, what role would they play? Uh, I, I can't think of anything that would be and it'd just be like uh, 1983 and the intervention in Lebanon. You're putting a, b- a bunch of U.S. servicemen into an area and painting a big fat target on their backs. Hmm. Uh, getting back to what's happened uh, in the U.K., how do they move forward from this? Does this change the way uh, um, counterintelligence works? Or as you mentioned, uh, this is certainly not the first rodeo for the U.K. It's not the first rodeo, and there'll be many more. Um the police reacted very quickly. Uh, it looks like they've uh, uh, there's a minimum of the sort of confusion we often see after an incident like this. Um, and again, the standard operating procedures and the contingency planning of the uh, Metropolitan Police Force and the British authorities are the model that a lot of other countries try to copy. You know, they're, they're, the British are good at dealing with this sort of thing.
Uh, do you think this has any uh, uh, relation to uh, what the UK just announced yesterday and echoing what the United States was doing and restricting electronics on planes and such? Does that have anything to do with this? Um, not really. Uh, the, the, any connection would be tenuous at best, I think. Uh, but that also represents another difficulty. Um, I, I don't know what the exact intelligence was that triggered the uh, the restriction, except that I think um, the Al-Qaeda bomb makers uh, who are in Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula, that's basically where their A-team are at, mm-hmm. have just changed the game again. You know, um, they, they've got a uh, bomb designer there. He's responsible for things like the underwear bombing, the toner cartridge bomb, the plot. Um, he even sent his own brother in to assassinate the uh, Saudi uh, security minister with a bomb in his body cavity. Hmm. So, you know, he walked right through the, yeah. wow. the alarms and self-detonated a bomb concealed in his guts. Um <sighs> Uh, what about what about you know with, with this uh, device travel ban from these countries? Uh, is that effective? I mean, does it matter if the device is in the cargo hold as opposed to on the plane? And what about people just rerouting their plans? I mean, d- does this change much? Does this make us any safer? Well, I think the Americans are still trying to figure out what exactly the threat is, but they're taking the easy step right now. Yeah, um, bombs on airplanes are an old story. Um, but particularly after the Air India bombing and the Narita bombing, as well as the Lockerbie bombing, um, the defenses against a checked-in bomb in someone's baggage are much better. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have a, a bomb that would have a catastrophic effect in the passenger area, which is pressurized, mm-hmm. uh, and that could lead to explosive decompression and can bring the plane down. So a very small charge could do it. That same charge in the baggage compartment might not even be noticed. Hmm. Interesting. John Thompson has been with us, security consultant, strategic intelligence group. John, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, Hamilton counselors, somehow Hamilton counselors have decided to pay for a citywide poll uh, that will see what the public support is for the LRT project. Why now? I'm not really sure. Here's what Councillor Jason Farr had to say. That while there's some on council and some in the community that want to suggest that there's so many other things we can do, battery-powered buses or flying cars or gondolas, the reality is the billion dollars goes back into the pot and another community gets their higher-order transit that's currently unfunded, and that's the brass tax. He also said on the Bill Kelly Show this would be wise to use this opportunity and money to perhaps educate people. I think we can educate those folks who may be on the fence about LRT, who may be hearing the hyperboil or the dissent and from the no LRT side and these organized efforts, whether they be from a few councillors or people in the community, on options and alternatives. There are no options or alternatives being presented. All right. Uh, Councillor Sam Marula said that uh, he's putting money behind it because he believes the results will help him and other LRT supporters hone the message. I don't get that. Uh, I want to know what people think. I want to know what people know or think about the project. Uh, He said, anyone who is totally opposed to the project, in my view, probably doesn't have all the facts, and it's our job to get those facts out there. 
He noted that there was polling prior to the city's final decision on the Red Hill Valley Parkway and found the results useful. Even though it showed many Ward 4 residents were opposed, quote, I bucked popular opinion in that case, and at this point, I think we can all be thankful I did. Oh my God, are we ever thankful for you, Councillor. I don't know what we would do if we didn't have great councillors like you around the table at City Hall. Oh, my Lord. Uh, let's bring in Larry DeAnne, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, who's probably just shaking his head right now. Hello, Larry. How are you? I am well. No, I'm just chuckling at your always well-timed sarcasm. <laughs> so what is the, the, the purpose of this poll seems to be as vague as the council members that are supporting it. What is the objective here? What is the poll going to ask? And I know I should be asking councillors, but really I don't have the patience, so I'm asking you who's been there and done it. What are, what are they going to ask in the poll? How is this going to change the discussion? Well, I don't know whether it'll change the discussion, but it'll confirm um, how some of the councillors are feeling about the discussion, or more precisely, how they may be feeling about people's attitudes towards the discussion. So if you're the councillor who is skeptical, um, you are going to hope that the poll will show that uh, so is the community, uh, skeptical and unsupportive of this project. On the other hand, if you're the councillor who is supportive, like San Marula, uh, you want to know uh, the And thank God he is. I mean, thank goodness. Anyway, sorry I interrupted, Larry. That's okay. terrible of me. So he and others like Sam will want to know the degree to which um, people are unsupportive so that they can provide them with some information that would make them more supportable uh, of, the, of the project. So... It really depends on which side of that fence you're on as to what you think the poll will do for you. Um, but, uh, you know, the poll, depending on how the question is asked, um, may do neither of those things. They may simply uh, keep confusing the issue rather than uh, illuminating it. Do we need to confirm any of this? Does does council need to know where the, city, the, the, the citizens stand on this? Have they not heard enough? Well, you'd like to think that once they made the decision to go forward on this project, once they made the decision to ask for full funding from the province mm -hmm. on this project, once they made the decision to uh, open a an LRT office, staff it, and start spending money, and I think we're at several, uh, more than several millions of dollars that have been spent, uh, once you've made those decisions, you'd like to think that um, that you would have had all the information at your disposal in order to move forward with the project. So it does seem a little late in the game to uh, to start testing people's attitudes towards the project, uh, which has initiated now some years ago. Is this not just councillors riding the fence and not willing to make a call either way and just relying on their constituents to, I guess, I don't know, bring up the point of the day? Uh, you know, well, so, so, I mean, let, let's take them at their face value, which is that they want to, uh, A, um, further engage the public through this scientific poll, and then, depending on what the poll says, uh, take the next step, uh, either in terms of uh, in terms of informing people more, providing some education around it, and so on. So let's assume that that's exactly why they're doing it. 
it's never a bad idea to go back to the public and say, this is the initiative. Uh, how do you feel about it? I don't think that's a bad idea. And really, uh, $8,000, if they're spending that, uh, which is what I've read uh, in the uh, paper, the, the poll might cost. In the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot of money, especially if it comes out of existing budgets uh, that the councillors have. So I don't think that's ever a bad idea. However, as in politics, there's always more to it than just the the bare facts, right? Because there's always the political side. And the political side is there are some councillors who are either skeptical or non-supportive of the project, and they want to kill it. Uh, and A, they're, they've been trying... Uh, a number of ways to maybe put a stop to it. <clears throat> and they see that if they get some public opinion behind them, uh, that might finally do it. Uh, on the other hand, there are also people in the community, some of whom have taken some leadership positions and have spent money on, on their own on billboards and so on, who also don't like the project and, and would be encouraging of a council doing this and hoping that the public is indeed against the project. Uh, all that is the political side, you know, that, that keeps this community interesting. But there's also another side, Scott. And the other side is, what the hell are we doing? Let's give our heads a shake. Sorry, Larry, that's where I'm coming from. Well, and, and I would agree with you on that. And, and my point there would be, look, we have been given a billion dollars to enhance our public transit. We've got a plan. The plan is being implemented. Yes, there will be some bumps on the road, pardon the pun, but it's a billion dollars to enhance your public transit. <clears throat> let's, let's not go back and revisit the decision that's already been made. Let's move forward, and let's also address some of the other issues that people are talking about uh, to make it a better plan. And one of them is the A-line that's also been talked about. The other is this, this blast system, which talks about public transit all over the system, all over the, the city. Uh, and, and let's move forward for a change rather than doing what Hamilton is best sometimes known for, whether it's expressways or casinos or stadiums hmm. or now uh, public transit. Let's polarize ourselves. Let's have a great big fight. And at the end of the day, we've got a divided community no no matter how you shake it. I think that effort isn't as good as trying to unify everybody behind a project that will enhance this community rather than detract from it. You know, it's interesting. We're going through a boom right now, and we've all turned the corner. We've seen the Renaissance. Lord knows we've talked about it for many, many, many years. We're finally seeing it happen. You'd think that somehow people would use this uh, as an experience. You know, we see how much the housing market is increasing in Hamilton, yep. and, and that's largely because it has been falling behind for the last 25 years yep. because of the exact same lack of decision that you're talking about. So now that we've finally gotten things rolling and we finally see that we need the Red Hill and we need the Link and all of these things, why can't people look to the past and predict the future? Oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm with you. And there are some uh, people on council, um, you know, the mayor and, and uh, a whole bunch of other councillors uh, who are who are uh, certainly there in terms of trying to lead this community uh, towards a future state that uh, is good for all. Um, and, the, and, and even some of the councillors who are uh, skeptical or voicing some questions, they're asking good questions that deserve some answers. 
Um, and, and so let's take that in stride. But no, we often fall into, and I'm afraid the media has a role to play here as well, not that I'm blaming the media because the media is reporting what's happening, uh, but, but the media as well loves the drama loves the A or B proposition rather than the A and B proposition. I and love this crap, Larry. I get, I live for every day to come in and talk about this crap. Are you kidding me? There's nothing I like about this. It's, it's, it's no, you know, no, anyway, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Okay, so what if after the big survey, the survey says we don't want it. Right. The survey says we do want it. How does either one of these decisions change well, anything moving forward? Well, if it says we do want it, I think that puts an end to it. My fear, my fear is that for many different reasons, depending again on how the question is asked, and hopefully they'll hire a professional firm that will ask an honest question and a clear question, but my fear is that somehow because I live in Waterdown and will never use LRT, or I live in... Uh, in Stony Creek, and why didn't they come all the way to Eastgate? Or I live on King Street and I have a business there, and that's going to be disruptive to me. Uh, that there are going to be people who will vote for many different reasons, will vote against the project. And if that happens, that'll be a problem because now you'll have an empirical poll taken by the city that will say lack of support, so it'll give fuel to those who want to put an end to this project, and I think that's dangerous. Larry, I can tell you right now that the results from this will come in, and they will be negative against the LRT. I can guarantee that. If I was a bet man, I'd put money on it. And, and for the reasons that I just stated, and for the reasons that I just stated, I suspect that you might be right. It's not, it's not good, uh, but I think people will take their opportunity if they're polled uh, to express a negative view for all of those many reasons that I just stated. It doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do, uh, but that's the danger they're into by having introduced this motion. Should this have been done earlier, or is this just the 20th time we've done it? <clears throat> well, I, to my knowledge, there has not been a poll on this issue, uh, no. uh, such as that they're talking about, so it's the first time. But absolutely, you should do these things at the beginning of a process rather than at the end of the process. But again, we've already uh, reaffirmed this several times. Uh, should we have started with this before we started reaffirming several times? Well, you know, and again, the dynamics have changed uh, uh, significantly, A, around the route and B, around some of the complications as we learn more about the and then we plan more. Uh, so, so now people feel it's time to, to ask the question. But it's not ideal. It's not ideal. We've already launched the process. We've received the allocation, or at least the allocation has been earmarked for us from the city. Uh, and uh, on top of that, we've done all this planning and spent all this money. And for us to sort of in the middle of an implementation, to go and say, well, is this a smart idea? To me, doesn't sound like the right process to be using it all. So it sounds great that we're asking for feedback from the city, but does it make council look dumb, the fact that they're doing this now as the process is, you know, uh, almost ready to start as opposed to at the very beginning? So I don't, I don't know whether dumb is the right word to use, but it certainly looks as if the cart and the horse are at the wrong end of each other. <laughs>
That is very delicately put, Larry. Uh, and, you know, if I was using horse, I perhaps might have used another. Uh, well, never mind. All right. Uh, as always, Larry, uh, thank you very much for the time. Larry Deany has been with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton. Hamilton councillors deciding to pay for a citywide poll that will see what the public support is for the LRT. Larry, when will we know more on this? When will we... Well, we're, it sounds as if we're heading to a crucial vote, and that's why this vote this yeah. poll is being taken. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm sure before that vote, there will be lots of information uh, on this issue. Larry Deany, uh, Larry Deany, former mayor, city of Hamilton. Larry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.